Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Well, welcome back, everyone, to another installment of Worldview Wednesday on the podcast for cultural reformation. This podcast is brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm Ryan Aris, and I'm joined, as always, by Nathan Oblak and Dr. Joe Boot. And guys, it's uh, it's good to be here. It's good to be together. We've uh, we've been podcasting for going on six months now in uh, in this format. We've picked up some new listeners. We're grateful to uh, to all of you who are tuning in. And we thought that uh, this being a Worldview Wednesday series, that it would be uh, it would be appropriate and worthwhile to circle back to the concept of worldview. We've been throwing it around a lot. It's a uh, it's a popular term, but we don't want to rush ahead of ourselves. So we were uh, we're here today. We've got a whole episode on this concept of worldview. Good to have you with us. Good to be here, Ryan. Mm-hmm. Since it's Worldview Wednesday, we thought, well, we ought to talk about worldview in one of these podcasts. So we've got yeah. the opportunity to do it today. I like it. So, Joe, let's uh, let's start us off. Um, as uh, as some of us, uh, some will know, this idea, this or this term, worldview, is sort of an inadequate, best we can do English translation. Uh, of the German phrase Weltanschauung, uh, which was ter- termed by uh, Immanuel Kant. You said that very well. Do you have mm-hmm. German ancestry? I have some German relatives, yeah. so I kind of listen to them whenever they talk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the term, that it literally means world perception. And it, uh, again, it's the, it's the best that we can do to describe a our attempt at building a comprehensive... Uh, perception or uh, edifice for understanding every part of human experience. If that, if I can say that in one or two sentences, Joe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm going to turn it over to you, and I'm going to open it up uh, by asking you say a little bit more here on what is worldview. What's contained in that term? Yes. So it has become part of the to some degree anyway, part of the nomenclature of uh, evangelicalism to some degree, especially in the uh, field of Christian apologetics. The, the term uh, wasn't always used, of course. Um, you mentioned Kant being the, the, the first person to employ it, but it has, it has taken on a certain popularity and something of a of a life of its own and i think one uh thing that we can make the mistake of doing is assuming that everybody knows what we're talking about when we when we speak about world view and of course the term has come in for some criticism as well especially from the thomists um and the uh the tradition within classical uh christian apologetics has tended not to like the term um, world and life view. Um, Do you think you could expand on Thomists there? What do you mean by that? Yeah, Joe? so those who have uh, generally followed, like the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the uh, the 
well, really the ontology and epistemology, that's the, the, the theory of, of being and the, and, and the theory of knowledge of Thomas Aquinas, mm. which um, from Romanism also became the majority report of, of most evangelical slash reformed apologetics for for many many years mm. um mm -hmm. and uh a new direct a different direction of course is found prior to that in augustine and then uh in calvin to some degree but it was never really fleshed out systematically until um i would say abraham kuyper who really took the reformed worldview as he would say the the calvinistic vision of reality and um sort of rescued it from uh its imprisonment in church dogmatics um and um ecclesiastical life and said look that the the biblical faith is more than simply our confessions it's a totalizing view of reality mm -hmm. so that's really what worldview is that's what we're mm -hmm. talking about when we when we use the term some Critics have tried to suggest that Hermann Doerverd invented the idea of a Christian worldview. Um, that is, uh, that's not true. I don't think. Um, I think you know probably the biblical writers might take offence if they <laughs> understood uh, that uh, what world and life view in terms of its how we use it today to understand how we understand the world in terms of our basic assumptions that that was somehow invented by a twentieth century philosopher. Um, so before before you go further, um, we started out talking about worldview, and you're using the term world and life view. Mm -hmm. uh, is are those are you using those synonymously? Yes, yeah, so I'm I'm trying to there just I expand it beyond, um, as you said, the because of the inadequacy of the English translation mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of the German word. What's really encapsulated in it is. Uh, a world and life view so it's 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 not just the idea that you might uh, when we think of worldview oftentimes the the image that is used in uh, popular literature or whatever is you know that classic image of the globe from space as mm. though you're just sort of in a distance and abstract way looking mm. at uh, the world and right. you're somehow detached from it mm. a world and life view gives the sense of no this is uh, this this has to do with the fundamental religious assumptions that we bring to bear uh, upon the world, um, how we how we interpret our experience in the world, and and it governs the conclusions that we reach. So, when I use the term world and life view, I do mean it in a synonymous sense with with worldview. And um, going back to uh, our. Uh, one of the people that we cite frequently, Herman Doivert, he mm -hmm. talked about the creation, fall, redemption, um, and the consummating, uh, consummation aspect of um, Scripture, the consummation of all things in terms of the power of the Holy Spirit, as the basic structure of a Christian world and life view. So we would reject the idea, in other words, that that although the term worldview was first used by the German philosopher Kant, that somehow that in that the concept itself or the term itself is imprisoned in some sort of um, uh, ideological um, philosophical view of an idealist philosopher, mm -hmm. and that, as if that, nobody had a worldview before as the if, exactly mm -hmm. as if nobody had 
a worldview before the Enlightenment worldview or before the Thomistic mm. world and life view. Mm. Okay, so when 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 we talk about it, what we mean is something very comprehensive uh, and not narrow. Certainly not borrowing the uh, or adopting all of the forms of any sort of Kantian view of the world. Uh, it's simply a way of describing the the nature and character of human knowledge and experience as we encounter the world, as we seek to build uh, knowledge structures. Mm. So <clears throat> the way we could break it down is something like this. Human beings uh, have, because of course, a lot of Christians even have not, don't talk about worldview, are not familiar with the terminology, haven't thought out in detail a Christian world and life view. Uh so it's important that we sort of define it clearly mm -hmm. in relationship to the idea of our faith and, and, and our salvation. The, every human being has uh, and is informed by what we might call, a, 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 let's say, a spiritual ethos. Um, it was, again, Herman Doiverd who used the rather technical term of a ground motive. And all he meant by that was that there is basically a religious idea that shapes and influences us, every single human being and every single culture, a fundamental religious idea, um, a ground idea, if you will, essentially a, 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 an idea that shapes the way we think about life, especially our relationship to the origin of all things and the destination of all things. Now, that, I, that basic religious idea that shapes every culture is obviously not necessarily thought through in detail mm -hmm. by every person in a culture. Not every Christian, as we say, is thought through the Christian world and life view, but they're shaped by their faith and the spiritual ethos of uh, their basic and fundamental faith, which for the Bible, of course, is rooted in our hearts. The heart is that undifferentiated point of our being that the sort of focal point of our existence you can't reduce it to your thinking or your feeling or your doing it's the uh it it those are all functions of the heart which is at the root of our being and our hearts are shaped by in terms of what we're saying in terms of this concept of worldview is fundamentally shaped by an underlying uh, spiritual ethos that is either turned towards god in true faith and worship and obedience or turned away from God in apostasy. Now, and Joe, if I could just jump yeah, in, ahead. I think it'd be important to clear this up now, but you mentioned that every human being has a worldview, uh, yet earlier you said that a worldview is rooted in religious assumptions, a spiritual ethos. So, mm -hmm. I mean, wh which one is it? Does it only apply to religious people? What about the atheists, the agnostic? Mm. So every person... Uh, has a fundamental attitude of life, let's call it that, a, a faith posture, which is either one that's turned toward true worship or idolatry. That's the fundamental position of Scripture. And that fundamental view of reality uh, either can be developed, and in terms of the basic structural features of that view, can be worked out into a fairly detailed worldview. Not everybody does that. Mm. So not every atheist, not every Hindu, not every Muslim, not every Buddhist, not every Christian, in terms of their fundamental ethos, in fact, I would say the majority 
of mm. people are carried along by that ethos without necessarily carefully thinking through what are the structural features of my view of the world that are implicit in this religious view of reality. So uh, every person then, uh, let's we might say, has implicitly has a world and life view, even if they haven't thought it through in detail. If you ask, if you start asking them some fundamental questions, you could begin to tease out what their basic world and life view is. Mm. So it's in some respects there, it's about bringing their world and life view to conscious, uh, a more conscious perception, a more conscious recognition. Um, you know, again, if we were to use a more technical term, we could talk about pre-theoretical beliefs. So these are mm. fundamental beliefs that go before any of the sciences we're engaged in, any of the fields or disciplines of study that we might be involved in in school or in university, looking at biology or uh, English literature or history or physics or sociology or any of these disciplines. We bring to all of those things basic beliefs uh, that if we were to uh, delineate them, if we were to uh, uh, look at their structural features, we would discover a world and life view that we bring to those studies. Hmm. So this comes back to something that you pick up on often, Nathan, in our podcasts when we attack the myth of neutrality. Hmm. What we're saying here is that, uh, yes, the Christian looks at the world in terms of the basic contours of creation, our fall into sin, our redemption in Jesus Christ, and the consummation of all things at the return of Christ which we might summarize with the term the kingdom of God. Mm. And that fundamental to the Christian's world and life view is the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ, beginning with creation, ending with the consummation. Now, you could take any other basic religious ethos, a Buddhist one, a, a Muslim one, a Hindu one, an atheistic one, a Marxist one, and by asking fairly simple and straightforward questions about origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, you would tease out the structural features uh, mm. of a worldview. Mm. So that's what we mean by it. Uh, we, we mean uh, that we don't mean that nobody had a worldview before the 19th century. Mm. We mean that all human beings, even though we've used that new term to conceptualize what we're talking about, uh, it's evident that the Abraham and Moses had a very different understanding view of reality through which they understood their life in the world than the Egyptians from which Moses, uh, uh, well, he obviously understood the learning of the Egyptians. He was raised in the, in the household of Pharaoh. He understood what the pagans believed uh, and he left. And the confrontation between Moses and, and Pharaoh Later on, of course, prior to the plagues is a very, and during the plagues is a very interesting one, as those two completely different understandings of reality are come into conflict with one another, with God answering in the most emphatic terms about which worldview he supports. Mm. So <laughs> that's what we mean. That's what we mean by it. It sounds technical, but actually it's describing something very ordinary, very everyday, very simple. It's like a set of lenses. Uh, we all wear glasses, um, so we know what it's like to wear a set of lenses. And mm -hmm. the thing about worldview is that it's not so much something we look at. 
Like, oh, look at this wonderful worldview. At most of the time, it's unconscious. It's something we see with. So we're frequently unconscious that it's even how of how it's even functioning in our lives because we see with, which is this word perception that we use there, Ryan. right? We're actually seeing with that worldview, and not everybody takes the time to say, oh, look, let's examine the structural features of the lenses that I've got cemented to my nose mm. to look at the world. So that's fundamental to what we... that I think that's probably a fairly now detailed uh, analysis of what we actually mean by, by mm. worldview. Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting to talk about its function in our lives a little bit more, but that's what we mean by it. So every, every one of us has a worldview. Uh, we've talked about uh, this term before. Worldview is another one of these inescapable concepts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But t- does that mean that there are as many worldviews as there are souls, as there are people walking the earth? Or can they these be broadly grouped? Yeah, that's mm. a good question. No, they can certainly be broadly grouped. Uh, of course, there are eccentric individuals who have... Uh, <laughs> Um, some bizarre <laughs> ideas uh, where they're coloring around the edges of these basic worldviews. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if we were to uh, to boil it down to its most simple, we would go back to our friend, Dr. Peter Jones, uh, one of the fellows of the Ezra Institute, who has very helpfully summarized essentially how all world and life views really boil down to two uh, ultimate views of reality. One is worship of the creator which is the triune god of scripture and the other world and life view is worship of the creature which of course paul the apostle delineates there in in romans chapter one and what uh, dr jones has summarized these helpfully as oneism and twoism uh the oneist view tries to find something within creation upon which everything else depends uh, so there is the the attempt to find something created as a substitute divinity concept. Um, and typically, the way that finally works itself out is that everything in all of reality becomes dependent upon one aspect of the or a combination of aspects of the created order. Tuism, as Dr. Jones says, is actually the recognition of the creator-creature distinction that the triune God of Scripture is wholly distinct from creation and stands outside of it. Uh, Oneism collapses any divinity concept uh, with creation itself because the origin of all things is located somewhere within creation. So that's the simplest and, and most basic distinction where you can, in the end, reduce ultimately reduce all worldviews to two, uh, but broadly speaking, you might expand that to a Trinitarian theism, so Christianity, uh, the bare theism of uh, or monotheism of other theistic ideals, um, various um, theosophies uh, that sort of seek to um, make God intertwined in some way with the world, and then pantheism. Um, which is you know the idea that all is God, uh, all is one, one is all, all is God, um, and then we could talk uh, broadly about Marxist and atheistic views of 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 reality as well. Um, now, 
we haven't got time to do the apologetics necessary to reduce atheism, Marxism, the pantheistic views of Buddhism and Hinduism, and then some mm. of the uh, monotheisms and, and various theosophies to reduce those to oneism and twoism. That's the task of Christian apologetics, and there's mm. plenty of books we can recommend on that. But mm -hmm. but broadly speaking, we could we could talk about sort of those four fundamental uh, world and, and, and life views. <clears throat> you know, you can tuck animism uh in there as well um into a basic form of paganism of of of, of oneist philosophy mm. so uh although it looks on the on the on the surface of things incredibly complicated uh it, it is it is not that difficult to fairly quickly reduce the playing field to just a handful of 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 competing world and life views mm. And Joe, I'd just like to circle back a little bit to what we were saying earlier. You mentioned worldview is like a set of glasses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, right now I'm wearing glasses and I'm looking at our Ezra Institute coffee mug here on the table. And I feel like there's a lot of people out there that think that their thinking begins with the coffee mug, with what they're looking at. So I'm thinking of scientism, for example. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you can elaborate on that just a little bit. Yeah, so one of the, 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 the things that makes worldview thinking so important is helping people to recognize um, their unexamined assumptions. You've used the illustration of, of, of scientism, and um, that tends to be expressed in the idea, which is very popular in our culture still, and in our present crisis we can see how popular scientism mm -hmm. is, that there is such a thing out there as the as bare or brute facts uh, that uh, that 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 all that, that that there are some some people who are religious mm. like us mm. and there are other people who are non-religious mm -hmm. and rational and scientific mm -hmm. just the facts just the facts mm -hmm. yeah. and mm -hmm. and all they are doing is looking at the facts of human experience mm -hmm. The cold, hard, rational truth, as it were, um, and uh, that they are sort of this notion that they are unbiased or neutral as they look at things because they're non-religious. And actually, it wasn't just Herman Doiverd, but you could look at um, Thomas Kuhn and uh, Michael Polanyi and other um, philosophers of science of the 20th century who've totally destroyed uh, this notion that you can have a uh, a radical separation of fact and value as though you can come to any mm. um, factuality, any data as it were, from, uh, from, from a position that is uh, completely uninformed by pre-theoretical commitments. Mm. So what you have there is the idea that you can sort of make theory itself, science itself, which is mm. a, a, a theoretical view of reality where you're looking at one particular part of reality to try and examine it and understand it as though you're doing that in a purely neutral fashion. And there are these brute facts out there that are uh, essentially um, uninterpreted, um, uncreated until the human person, until the human mind, if you will, comes along and interprets them. And of course, this was a part of the problem in with Kant and and his thought in particular, which was this notion that the human mind gives as well as takes, which is to say that uh, we we come to these facts, uh, we come to the data as it were, 
Um, but we don't really encounter um, uh, things as they are uh, in themselves. We encounter them um, through our, a certain set of uh, uh, assumptions. But there is something out there called the thing in itself, mm. which we have no access to. So Kant was, of course, aware of the of the the importance of the subject, that is, the the, the individual in the process of of knowledge. But he kind of posited this this realm of brute factuality, right? Of uninterpreted factuality, the thing in itself. Mm. And for him, we had no real access to that. What uh, the, the scientism comes along and really says is, well, all we've really got is this brute fact, this this thing in it in mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. And now we're going to look at this raw data of our um, experience, and um, we're going to construct the facts out of it and the notion that uh, that you can come to any facticity in a neutral way and build theories that's the problem mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. scientism mm -hmm. that there are i mean we should be alerted to the problem there immediately with the word theory right i mean the reason there are multiple theories and multiple views in almost every scientific discipline how can you account for the fact you've got all of these people supposedly staring at these bare brute facts that speak for themselves and the reality is they come to all of these different conclusions about mm. them right and when they're looking at the same data mm. right? the reason for that is that they are coming to those to the data to the facts as it were with values mm -hmm. they're coming to them with pre-theoretical commitments so there are no neutral theories mm -hmm. And that's the that's the real problem with that line of thinking. Kant was somewhat aware of it. We can't, of course, can't follow Kant on his effectively psychologizing of human knowledge, mm. uh, because he denied fundamentally that creation is meaning, and that all meaning uh, is derived from God and is sustained by God and is in terms of God's arrangement of all things in terms of his law. That's the Christian view. We don't create meaning. We discover it. Uh, we discover it because it's already there and it's God's meaning. But we, we don't encounter brute, uninterpreted factuality. And, and that's the problem with all forms of scientism, all forms of apostate uh, thinking, is this idea that we really can come to uh, the world in this independent, autonomous way, and we aren't really bringing uh, these pre-theoretical commitments. We absolutely are. That's what accounts for all of the differences in the disciplines and how we uh, how we think about them, even how we conceptualize them. I mean, think about um, theories in mathematics, for example, or in physics. Uh, take, for example, the view of numbers in mathematics, and, and the simple question: What are numbers? Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, are we going to have some sort of world number theory like the some of the ancients, um, some of the rationalists, that there is some sort of world of numbers out there in the abstract that uh, everything else depends on? Or are numbers just tools? Are they a shortcut to doing logic, as Bertrand Russell thought? Um, there are all kinds of views of what numbers are, yet we're all thinking about the same issue, the numerical aspect of our lives. What about the physical aspect of our lives? There are various views of uh, atoms. Uh, no, by no means are all schools agreed on what atoms um, actually are. Um, and so uh, 
you know, when you when you begin to drill down in these different disciplines, even in the so-called hard sciences, I mean, it's very easy to show in things like psychology and sociology and everything else. But some people think, well, when you get down to the hard sciences, then mm. you're just dealing with the facts. But it's mm. patently not the case. Mm. The, the uh, You've got intuitionist schools of mathematics. You've got rationalist schools of mathematics. You have different views of logic. The reason there are these different views is because we come to those issues with different sets of pre-theoretical assumptions. Hmm. That's why what you've just described there um, is not tenable. Nobody just comes to look at the facts and says, I'm non-religious. Mm -hmm. And you use the word assumptions there, Joe, uh, implying that they're based on faith, right? No matter who you are, no matter what worldview you possess, that's been formed by a faith. And I know you've described it as a supra rational faith not mm -hmm. a irrational faith but mm -hmm. super rational and maybe you can flesh mm -hmm. that out a little bit yeah i mean without um without us wanting to um you know give people a headache uh, <laughs> while they're driving their car or making <laughs> dinner or whatever with this yeah what we mean um by uh, supra rational is that um these these faith commitments that that people have are not irrational um, because uh, reason is just to do with human understanding and how we, that's uh, what we mean by it at least, it's to do with how we um, differentiate and distinguish things. It's to do with the logical aspect of our experience. We, make dif we differentiate one thing from another. Um, but so, so it's not irrational. These, are, these go before our rational activities. These are, these are the ideas that we bring to all our rational activities. Van Til would have said it's like a buzzsaw. You know, logic can cut in any number of directions. It depends on how it's set. Um, if you think about it, the principles of logic, um, you know, if we go back to Aristotle's summary of them and so forth, and of course even later developments, uh, logic, uh, laws or norms of logic, of, lo of logical thinking, um, help guide us in um, reaching correct conclusions um, to not make mistakes in our reasoning, but they don't supply us premises. Logical norms, you know, A is not non-A, does not supply me with a truthful or, or an untruthful premise. Hmm. So uh, it's, a, it's, it's a tool that, 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 that can cut in you know, different directions depending mm. on, on how we're using it. So that, that's why we have to explode and we repeatedly try and help our listeners disregard this idea that any be, mm. anybody comes to the, to the world in a neutral way, hence the importance of the mm. concept of worldview. Mm. You touched on it, uh, anticipating my next question there, but to, you've, you said earlier that many, if not most people, uh, including Christians, haven't thought through their worldview. But to, to, to that, uh, what do you say to the person who says, well, like, why would I? You know, mm -hmm. we, uh, we mm -hmm. have experts, mm -hmm. we have, you know, doctors who specialize in our tonsils so that we don't have to think about, oh, what are, what are my tonsils doing and yeah. at every minute? Uh, why would, you know, the ordinary guy with kids at home and mm -hmm. oil in his car to change spend some time to think about his worldview? Sure. Well, that's a good question. I think it's important to um, recognize that we do want to, and part of our goal as an institute is to take 
this con this sometimes high sounding idea of worldview and make it ordinary mm-hmm. um help people recognize the significance and importance of it the i think the best way i can illustrate that is well let, let me let me premise this by saying um uh, sorry uh, preface this by saying got logic on the brain now you see premises <laughs> and conclusions uh preface this by saying that what we're not saying is that if you don't have a well thought out worldview mm. you're somehow not a christian mm. or you're deficient in your faith or whatever some of the people i've learned the most from about what it means to live the christian life have been far from being expert in christian world and life view or any other worldview analysis right so what we're not saying is that worldview is identical with the gospel and our personal salvation and that if you haven't thought this through there's something seriously wrong with your salvation that's not that we're not saying that what we have said is that that world and life view is about identifying the structural features of your faith your belief system that's why we talk about a belief system um and then highlighting because as you identify those structural features you very quickly learn to identify where it differs from the structural features of the of the perspective on reality of your neighbor uh, of your fellow student Mm -hmm. of your colleague at work and it helps you begin to understand well why is it that they are so hostile to uh, my understanding of human sexuality why are they so hostile to my view of the family? I don't understand that. Why, why are they, do they appear hostile to my perspective on, on life and life issues and, and the importance of, the, uh, of life in the womb? Why are they so hostile to my perspective on what justice and righteousness means in public life? Why are they hostile to me homeschooling or Christian schooling my children it's very difficult for us to understand the world in which we live and what we encounter as christians if we've given no thought mm. to christian world and life view i think it was uh, somebody that you ran into once ryan at the institute who said you know uh yeah i don't know about all of this christian worldview and philosophy stuff i mean you know why don't we just focus on you must be born again <laughs> that's um, right <laughs> <laughs> which, which kind of makes me chuckle but uh when you think about that, I mean, if you were to break that statement down, okay, you must be born again. What does that mean? Oh, well, that was a statement of Jesus to Nicodemus. Why did Jesus say that? Well, he was highlighting something that the Scripture teaches over and against what a Pharisee thought mm-hmm. about what the Scripture teaches. Uh, somebody who had misunderstood the teaching of the Bible. Mm. Why had they misunderstood that? Well, they had a set of lenses cemented to their face that saw somehow that their genetic inheritance in Abraham or their outward observance of external laws was sufficient to give them salvation, and they were wrong. So actually, as soon as you start to analyze and break down, you must be born again, you get, uh, you get back fundamentally to the biblical view of the kingdom of God, because actually Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see mm. the kingdom of God. Or well, what's the kingdom of God? creation fall redemption consummation in jesus christ so in the end every kind of question like that brings you back to christian world and life view so we're just trying to help christians identify those structural features so that they can then identify where their view differs understand their neighbor we'll come to this in more detail in just a moment 
and then of course be able to respond to questions and challenges in a coherent way. The other reason I think it's critically important that we spend some time in this is that uh, the Christian worldview functions like a gearbox in a car. Um, this illustration is not original to me. I wish it were, but it's Al Walters. I think it's in his book, Creation Regained. It's a very helpful introduction to uh, biblical worldview for people who are wanting to just explore the essential contours of what we're talking, talking about. And uh, uh, there he talks about on the power of the gospel on the one hand and the, uh, as being like the engine. And I think this is a helpful illustration because, of course, a lot of people make a lot of noise and there's a lot of sound and fury of the engine of the gospel. Justification by faith, brother. Yes, absolutely. Mm, I'm with yeah. you there. Rev you it know, up. Uh, soteriology, a Calvinistic soteriology. Yes, brother. Amen. Infallibility of scripture and so on. And you've got these um, these these basics, you know, Christian sanctification, in these important doctrines of the Christian life um, that are germane to what we call the gospel, the good news. Uh often, unfortunately, not sufficiently identified with the kingdom of God in most cases, but sort of these mm. subsets of just church dogmatics, you know. Uh, nonetheless, here we've got what we might call the proclamation of the gospel of, you know, repentance, forgiveness, justification, and so on. And you can have a lot of noise there and a lot of roaring, a lot of sound and fury, and yet nothing changing in our lives, in our family life, in our cultural life, in our national life. And what's important there is that the, the you can have a, uh, I mean, I've had some muscle cars in my time, um, American muscle and good old-fashioned British muscle. I even mm. had a V12 Jag at one point, mm. Ryan. Beautiful old uh, classics gone now. British sadly. racing green. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and... You can have a beautiful, powerful engine that makes that lovely rumble. But if you didn't have a gearbox in the car, what good is all of that noise? What good is all of that sound and all of that rumble, all of the beauty of that sound, unless you can transfer the power of that hmm. to the axles, to the wheels, so that you can actually move forward? And, and that, of course, is the basic idea of an engine, is that it gives you a power source so that you can move. And a worldview is like a gearbox. It translates the power of the engine and contextualizes it, to use another word, and don't want to mix my metaphors too much, but it, it transfers, that's why we call it a transmission, mm -hmm. uh, for all of you ladies listening. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get slapped later for that. Um, so it, that, we, we call it a transmission because it takes the power of the engine and, and, and the gearbox Trans transfers all of that power, all of that horsepower to the road through the axles and the wheels. And I think the big problem that we have in our culture today, which is why this is so important, is we have a lot of noise about the gospel being gospel-centered and gospel-centric and gospel this and we're gospel so-and-so and we're gospel this and we're gospel agreed and we're a gospel coalition and we're a gospel so and so forth, et cetera, et cetera. But are we translating the power of that gospel through the gearbox of a truly developed Christian world and life view so that we actually move forward in terms of the kingdom of God? 
so that we're actually translating that power into our families, into our homes, into our even into our churches, into our universities, into our schools, into the arts and the sciences, into politics and law and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And that is the true test of the noise of your gospel. The true test of all that noise is whether it actually is transferred by a worldview transmission into the mm. uh, real world. And um, I think that's where, to some degree, we've fallen down in Western cultural life, in the Western church for quite some time now, is we ignored voices like um, Abraham Kuyper, for the most part, and Herman Doiverd, and uh, Francis Schaeffer, and Cornelius Van Til, and others, and uh, overlooked what they were saying, and look where we are now. We're about to face criminalization for our views of human sexuality. Uh, we're about to find that being a youth pastor and telling, uh, counseling a young person and praying with them to resist, reject, and turn away from um, sexual sin um, is the, uh, uh, is actually a criminal act if Bill C six passes. So there you have an expression in the legal and the juridical sphere mm. of a worldview that's not being informed by the Christian world and life view. And in part, it's because Christians have not transmitted the power of the gospel uh, through a transmission of a biblical world and life view to mm. see culture renewed uh, and transformed. And this is why we talk so much here about thinking Christianly. And the importance of thinking through the various aspects of life with a biblical perspective and a biblical worldview. Precisely. Mm. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that Cornelius Van Til said, uh, he was a a Dutch-American Christian apologist, taught Christian apologetics. He said that, um, and I think this is the important link from worldview to worldview apologetics, or... uh, what we might call cultural apologetics, is that uh, without a developed world and life view, as I said earlier, Ryan, how do we identify the structural features of our view of reality, see the conflict or the antithesis between Mm. our view and the opposing worldviews, and then build a coherent, persuasive, true, good, and beautiful response? Mm. How do we do that? How do we obey the mandate of 1 Peter 3, 15 mm-hmm. to always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks a reason for the hope that's in you but do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience and that whole idea of readiness is be fit in the greek it's like an athlete who's conditioned and readied with a sufficient degree of 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 uh muscle and 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 uh flexibility to compete so always be ready to give a defense that's the word apologia or apologia um to give a defense a reason defense to anyone who asks a reason which means it's defensible it's Mm. not just your personal opinion it's not just your personal experience but there's a reason for the hope that you have that's the apologetic mandate it's difficult to see how you can do that if you don't have a developed christian worldview and peter didn't give that task to a small group of elite experts, Ryan, you asked, you know, wow, if we've got experts to do this, why should the average person be bothered? Well, mm. how are you going to answer the person, your neighbor, your school friend, mm. your colleague, who your asks children. you, your children mm. even, yeah, mm. who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you 
How are you going to give that if you can't even identify the structural features of your own uh, message? Mm -hmm. And you can't help them understand how that is different from the competing views. And you can't offer any reason why our view is to be preferred. Why it is that what we're saying in the Lord Jesus Christ is, in fact, the truth. So that's the that's the critical link, I think, the critical bridge. Um, it's why we go on about it so much, mm. as you said, Nathan. <laughs> it's the critical bridge into from worldview into an apologetic, the defense of that worldview, um, what we might call a cultural apolo- apologetic. And, and it was Van Til who said that the Christian apologetics is the defense of the Christian philosophy of life. It's not just a, a, a narrow... Uh, idea of well, how can I respond to the top three questions? Does does God exist? What about evil and suffering? And what about other religions? Uh, but how can I develop a defense of the total Christian view of reality as given to us in Scripture? How how do we develop that? So that means there's not just a defense of God's existence. There's not just a defense of the uniqueness of Christ or the authority of Scripture. It means there's a defense of the Christian view of family, human sexuality, Christian view of law, of education, of politics, of the arts, of the sciences. None of these areas are neutral. And it's because they're built on a completely different foundation. So if I were to um, talk about the elements, the link between worldview and cultural apologetics, the core elements of uh, a cultural apologetic are first understanding culture, which is, of course, the worldview element. How do I understand my own worldview in contrast to other worldviews? Then you're in cultural apologetics, which is what the Institute's concerned with. We are engaging culture, uh, which means that we are seeking to um, interact with and indeed shape the institutions that shape cultural life, family, the arts, educational institutions, political life, law, and so forth, in terms of the fullness of the Christian view. And then, of course, transforming culture, which means we're actually helping people to develop new cultural products, new thought products, uh, new artifacts, new practices, new rhythms of life that actually transform culture. So we understand culture, we engage culture, we transform culture. And for, for, for us in our tradition, at least in the Reformational tradition, there's four fundamental contours to that. Uh, the, the, there's four fundamental basics to that. There is creation itself, which we is the, is the first step in, our, in the building of, a, of our structure. The recognition of the sovereignty of God, the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. The Creation ordinances, that's the, the, the laws and norms that God has established for all of creation. Creation is meaning and sphere sovereignty, uh, the way in which God has created things after their kind and established differentiation within the social order. And we could summarize all of that in terms of the idea of the kingdom of God, the rule mm. of God, the reign of God. So the broad Christian worldview, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, and then the structural features of our cultural apologetic creation, the sovereignty of God, the creation ordinances, sphere sovereignty, the kingdom of God. And, uh, and that's, the, that's the fundamental reason why worldview is so important, because it builds into and is fundamental to the foundation of a cultural apologetic.
Well, we're running uh, running short on time here, Joe. I really appreciate you taking that the time to help uh, help us see where the rubber meets the road with a Christian worldview. Guys, thanks a lot for uh, being with us today. This has been Worldview Wednesday on the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute, reminding you all that from him, through him, and to him, that's Jesus Christ, are all things. We'll see you next week for the next Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy Every year about this time